0: In today's episode, we're going to talk about goal setting. We're also going to recommend some apps to aid you in your productivity. Finally, we're going to talk about fear and how you can overcome it so that you can have the music career that you deserve. You're listening to
1: Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis.
0: Hello, thank you for pressing play today. This is episode 30. We're moving right along. Today's show is sponsored by Nobody. Nobody is sponsoring today's show, (laughs) and that is perfectly fine. We're going to continue anyway because we have a good time here. And you guys are really showing your love to me. Uh, Thank you so much. The last couple of episodes with Ingrid Jensen and Terrell Stafford, wow, just wow. The the stats are really high, and I'm not a stat junkie, but I do check on occasion and when i logged on to check last just wow i just couldn't believe it so thank you for sharing thank you for listening thank you for subscribing thank you for the ratings and the reviews on itunes and stitcher and matter of fact i haven't i haven't uh, acknowledged that in a while i'm going to take a few seconds now to say thank you to the last few people who rated and reviewed the show and that would be mr reed styles chris white piano Uh, Matt McWilliams, and Mr. Podcast. And uh, I have no way of really reaching out to you. So from now on, leave your Twitter handle in in your review. Leave your Twitter Twitter handle, and I'll thank you publicly on Twitter. Uh, Here we are here. I want to read a review for Mr. Podcast. It says, I dig what you're doing. I like your interviews, but episode seven is my favorite. I have a brother and some friends who are incredible musicians, but have never done anything with it because they didn't know they could. And I am recommending this podcast to them. And I just want to say thank you for leaving that review because I didn't know and now I do. And it's things like, like that review that give me the fuel to continue because this is extra work, but I like doing it. I like making it available to you. And when you leave reviews like this, it just lets me know that there are real people on the other end listening. Because even as I'm speaking right now, I'm speaking into a microphone. There's no one else in the room. So just thank you for for this uh, form of communication. I really appreciate it. And the episode seven that he speaks of is actually one of the most popular episodes because I think it talks about how to market your music in today's internet era, if you want to call it that. I mean, we're on the next thing. So Uh, John O'Jaka really laid out the step-by-step how-to on how to market your music today. So if you haven't checked out episode seven, it's definitely worth your time. And after you listen to it, go ahead and start with step one. So yeah, that was really a good episode. And thank you, everyone. Thank you for for listening and sharing. Okay, so I might have talked too much there, but it's important for me to thank you. Okay, now is the time to introduce the guest for the day, but I got to get pumped up first. Hit the music. I like that. You know I'm talking to myself. I'm the one who hit the music. Uh, anyway. Here we go. Today's guest is known for his role in the Tony and Emmy award-winning show Blast. And he's probably even more popular, believe it or not, for his appearances in Dave Monette's trumpet videos on YouTube. And this guy is simply just a freak of nature when it comes to playing trumpet. Allow me to introduce to you right now, Mr. Adam Rapper. Thank you, Adam, so much for joining us on the show today. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to get to know you a little bit. I want people to get to know you a little bit. So will you tell us, what are some of your interests outside of music? <laughs> that's a funny question to lead with, because I'm not sure how, how
1: many interests I have that don't somehow relate back to music. Um, I guess that's You know, that's, that's,
0: that's funny, because Ingrid Jensen said the same thing. <laughs> not surprised. Yeah um although you know Angrid and i would probably both end up
1: saying something uh food related otherwise um uh, as well you know i don't know but even even food relates back to music because no one should really be cooking food without listening to music you know so it's that, <laughs> or singing or making music <laughs> uh yeah i don't know it, it's um i i do it, i guess if i if i got to ask what what else do i spend my time on that has, that has nothing to do with music, that would be a pretty difficult question. But, um, but I would, I would say that my life is filled with, with a lot of passions that somehow all revolve around the central hub of, um, of tone production, you know, whether, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, my career as a trumpet player or, uh, in liking to create, I, I, I love creating theater productions where, uh, lots of musicians and dancers and, 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 uh, multimedia artists are, are on stage doing their thing, and and uh, music is kind of the the, the glue that binds. Uh, or it could be talking about healing, whether it's uh, through the use of didgeridoos and overtone singing or or chanting of some kind. Whatever it is, uh, that's another way of of using um, sound to to create really profound changes in uh, in the human body and and psyche. So. Uh, it kind of all, it all revolves around that for me.
0: That's good. So will you tell us how do you, uh, tell us, what do you do as a musician? How do you earn your living? Uh, that that would be playing trumpet and and teaching the majority of the
1: time. The, uh, as a, I guess it just started as a hobby for me. I, I don't get paid to be, to be uh, an arranger, a staff arranger for anybody, but I, I end up uh, composing a bit and arranging heavily, uh, for the, the music that I perform. Uh, oftentimes whenever I'm lucky, uh, I get, I get hired to play my own music, which is, uh, what I love to do the most. Um, or at least I I like to have a hand in the, in the creative, uh, choosing of, of pieces for sure. But, um, but uh, yeah, so so there's there's I spend a, a good amount of time arranging as well, but that's not normally for money. I I could show up with stock charts to gigs where I've been hired and and make the same amount of bread, but um, but I really like the the creative process of of making the tunes. So, uh, but that's I I get on an airplane for almost every gig I do and and uh, fly around the world to play with all kinds of. It's a very strange career actually. It's I can't say I, I get paid to play in front of big bands or in front of concert bands or in front of brass bands or with jazz quintet or salsa gigs or, or it, it's, it's all, it's all of the above. It's never a dull moment.
0: <laughs> and that's the very reason why I wanted to talk to you. And I'm, and I'm glad and thankful that that is your experience because everyone can't say that. I mean, even let's okay, look at Wynton Marsalis, for example, great jazz player, also a great classical player but but even he made the decision i'm going to focus on jazz
1: yeah for sure well he's he's got he's got the luxury of of uh being able to support himself off of whichever whichever path he 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 wants you know it's it's entirely his choice i'm a, l- a little bit more catch as catch can at this point so um but but also there is a certain amount of um artistic add uh in my blood that um that that makes me want to change gears after a, a solid couple of weeks of working on one thing or another you know if i'm preparing a bunch of concertos or something for for a, a classical performance with with brass band accompaniment uh the very next thing i want to do um right after that is is shed some changes you know or go go play a a, a latin gig or a hip hop gig or something you know just really just change it up so i think it, it it partially comes with the generation that i'm a part of as well you know i was born in 1980 and when i was growing up my parents were listening to Motown and Ella Fitzgerald and, 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 you know, and, and I, I own a Pearl Jam record. I, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy looking back on, on what my first hundred albums were and, and how diverse they were and how that included things ranging from Doc Severance into Ravi Shankar. So, so I've always been really musically and artistically ADD, I guess. And, and uh, so that's, that I'm still carrying that on to till today. And I've just been lucky that Um, there are opportunities that allow me to be able to have my cake and eat it too, you know, so that I actually get to play some classical gigs and and play lead and play jazz and and play uh, a number of things that that, uh, I'd feel like my life was a little bit more boring if I didn't get to.
0: So you mentioned that you get to travel, that you spend a lot of time on an airplane. I want to talk about this for a minute. I want to stay here for a minute. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about first... Maybe the first time, you know, how did that come about, and you're still doing it. So, how have you sustained that? How have you made a career, of of traveling and, and performing?
1: Well, the first time that I started traveling, it was before a professional career. I was traveling on the road with a drum corps, uh, East Coast Jazz. It was a, a smaller drum corps in uh, in the Boston area that that uh, involved getting on a on a tour bus and going around, traveling around the country to various competitions <laughs> throughout the summer. Um, so so I, I learned how to how to sleep on a bus really, really young. I was 14 when we started touring and uh, and I did that for the next seven years. And in that time also, you know, I was driving all over New England and, and you know, from Massachusetts to New York and, and all over the place to do random gigs, whatever they might be, jazz gigs, wedding gigs, you name it. So there was a lot of driving before there was a lot of flying. And then when I was 21, I joined a, a Broadway show called Blast, a giant theater production where where there are lots of brass musicians and drummers and dancers uh, on stage doing choreography, dancing while we play. That show, most of the time we were flying uh, between all of our gigs. Every once in a while, there'd be some, some long hauls on a, on a tour bus, um, 500 miles or so. But otherwise, we, we'd be flying. And, and uh, that routine was pretty steady for, for many years. And we would fly every Monday and, uh, and gig from Tuesday through Sunday. So, uh, Monday was, was flying day. And I got really, really used to that, that, um, routine of getting on an airplane and getting to the next hotel and shifting the furniture all around with my roommate and (laughs) reorganizing the place and, and, uh, going shopping, filling our coolers and, uh, with, with, with groceries for the week and being on, on, uh, rotating ice detail and, and just figuring out how to, how to live on the road without having to eat out, eat fast food all the time and, and, uh, really kind of developed a, a lifestyle of being able to, to tour really well. And, uh, and I carried around two giant suitcases, 70 pounds each with me. It was completely unnecessary, but there was just so many things that I, I wanted to have, I wanted to have to feel like I had a, uh, some kind of constant life that I brought with me, regardless of where I was traveling to. Uh, but anyway, sounds like I'm diverting a little bit. Anyway, so after uh, after Blast, um, which I did for for years as a U.S. tour, then uh, sat down in London for for about five months with them, and and then we started doing summers in Japan. Uh, so there was a lot of traveling involved with Blast. And uh, after the first few years, which was just steady U.S. tour all the way, um, it became Blast became a seasonal job, and. In in between, I started traveling as a as a soloist and and guest clinician at, at universities and and, uh, and things like that. So it was it it, it just kind of naturally transitioned from I'm always traveling with Blast to I'm sometimes traveling with Blast and sometimes traveling is uh as the one man circus act. That got a lot more uh, more busy and more interesting after. I gained a certain level of notoriety. Um, a lot of a lot of thanks I have to give to Dave Monette for that, because uh, he's uh, for those of you who are out there that don't know who Dave Monette is, he's the maker of what I would certainly say are the by far the best trumpets on the planet, and he gets a lot of traffic on his website. and And uh, before he had a Facebook page, he was posting all his videos on YouTube, and there was just some random video of me playtesting some mouthpieces on the internet that all of a sudden was getting hundreds of thousands of hits. And, uh, and that's when things started getting much more interesting because I started getting invited to conferences, trumpet festivals and, and, uh, brass conferences around the world, which is when, uh, when it became much more enjoyable. <laughs> and, uh, and so instead of just flying to a neighboring state, it was now I'm flying to Brazil this month and, uh, and, you know, Armenia the next month or wherever It, it it's, uh, it, it got really, really fun from that point on. And that's just, a. A snowballing sort of thing. You know, you travel, travel to one place and make a good impression and make people happy, and you get called to hopefully go back there and go to more places. So, uh, a few years time, it, it it went from I'd I'd be traveling, I'd be flying someplace once a month, once every other month. It it became something much more frequent. I stopped living in the states uh, a few years ago, and and I. Spent about a year in Japan and then and, uh, and a couple of years living in Vienna. Now I've just moved to Copenhagen. And uh, the reason why I've relocated myself over to to Europe is because uh, at the moment, for the, the type of work that I'm doing, the type of gigs and the, the type of ensembles that I like to play with, there seem to be a lot more ensembles over here and uh, and quite a bit more money on the table. So after the financial crisis, when that whole thing hit and and uh, and I stopped stopped flying as much as I was, uh, around the States, I was flying internationally a heck of a lot more. And I was getting called for one gig here or there that was overseas. And I couldn't, couldn't find a way to to make it worth it because there was, uh, there was enough money on the table to pay me well for the gig, but not necessarily to fly me there and pay me well for the gig. So I was spending a bit of time trying to scramble and put together small makeshift tours and, and, uh, ended up just deciding to, to move over here to make it a lot e- easier. So I could, I could just, uh, you know, pay 50 or a hundred bucks to, to fly off to that one gig. And so, yeah, so that's been the lifestyle for a while now. Um, it's for the last seven or eight years, uh, since I stopped doing blast, uh, I've just had a career pretty much getting on an airplane for every gig, like I said, and, and, uh, and it's, it's really, it's an interesting way to live. (laughs) (laughs) It would be a lot nicer. Sometimes I'd feel I'd, I'd rather just commute down the road to work and, and not have to deal with it with the early morning trips to the airport. But, uh the the part of it the part of the gig that involves traveling and getting to meet people and, and experience their perspective, their whole take on music or life and food and and uh their social policies. It, it it's just such an interesting an interesting way to to spice up what would otherwise just be just a regular career where you just show up and do your job and, and go home. It's it's much more exciting this way, I find
0: thanks for sharing that with us. Now it sounds like you two really helped your career today is that accurate oh yeah okay so we're going to talk about post youtube and and prior so how how were you getting work before youtube what what did that mean what did you have to do
1: Word of mouth, for sure, and uh, and it helped that I was in, in blast. We were performing for large theaters filled with people, and uh, and you know the marching band crowd knew about it. In general, the school music programs they knew about it, and uh, so it was it was pretty easy for me to to reach out and connect with um, you know band members from. From all over the country and and uh and that was before we started going to Japan and the u k and uh and in the states, it began with you know I get a call from a band director who said, "Hey, I just saw you yesterday at the show and uh it was great. you know if you have any time the rest of this week, I'd love to bring you out and and uh and introduce you to to my kids, and you know we can pay for master class or or uh, or something like that. Otherwise, they'd say, "Hey, I just saw you yesterday, and I'd love to bring you for our next spring concert coming up, uh, the, you know, the next year." So, so it was. It it began with a lot of that. After or post YouTube, um, it you know, it was, hey, I saw your video online, and I'd love to bring you out to X, Y, or Z gig. Um, a lot of it actually comes from trumpet players who are enthusiasts and who you know have the desire to to bring. Their trumpet heroes to their local high school or university or whatever, and so a, a lot of the a lot of the work I get is all the work I get basically is it's offers that come in um, through emails or through Facebook or whatever, and uh, mostly most of the time it's it's uh, trumpet players who like my playing and want want me to come and and do something locally with them. So uh, feel really really blessed that that's the case. Um, I've never made much effort at all to to actually knock on doors and, and to, to find myself gigs. Usually I, I end up just being able to go with the flow and, uh, and arrange my life around the offers that come in.
0: All right. Now, I, I read an interview you did, 21st Century Brass. For, for you listening, you can just Google Adam Rapa with one P and you'll find, and you'll find that online. You can read it. It's really a good read. So I wanted to talk with you about some things like goal setting and, and habits and, and fear because it's my personal belief that if you are aware of certain things, you can just be a better trumpet player in in your mind. uh, There's a physical aspect of that you, that you need to address. But I believe that the majority of it is in your mind and you, you wouldn't have to touch the trumpet as long, if that makes any sense. Of course it does. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's let's talk about goal setting. And I don't know where to begin. Uh, well, let's talk about how important is goal setting, first of all.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, it it becomes increasingly important if you don't have anybody delegating particular responsibilities to you. You know, if you're, if you're part of a, of a corporate structure where there's a managerial food chain and it, it makes it a lot easier for, uh, for you to know what's on your agenda for the week or, or for the day. Um, as a freelance musician or freelance artist or, or <laughs> freelance entrepreneur of any kind, uh, you know, it becomes a very, very different ball game and, and you can, You can very easily watch a month just fly by where you've gotten absolutely nothing done, or you can, you know, move mountains in a month. And it really just has to do with, with your, your ability to, to set your goals, make them realistic and stick to them. Uh, that's, that's something that, that I've had to work on a lot. You know, in the beginning, I found myself wasting a lot more time, uh, than I do now. And it's, it's, I think the important thing in terms of setting goals is to make sure to set goals of with various trajectories uh that there are long-term goals there are um semi long-term goals there you know there's where I want to be where I want to be when I grow up you know where I want to be 10 years from now where I want to be in a year's time uh and what I need to get done in the next month and and what I can do uh and divide that up into weeks and what I'm going to get done this week and what I'm going to get done today. Uh, unless, unless I go so far as to, as to do that, uh, and make, and make that, that much of an effort to, to uh, schedule myself, then I end up just wasting a lot of time. For me, the it's, it's not out of laziness. It's just out of a, a, a sense of a feeling of overwhelmed. Being overwhelmed by the amount of things I want to accomplish, you know, if I if I don't take the time to divide and and subdivide the different responsibilities that I need to take on in order to accomplish my long term goals, then then I would just be weighed down so heavily by the pressures of those long term goals and and how monstrous they feel uh, that you know it becomes debilitating and you know I could end up just in the corner sucking my thumb and not getting anything done. So uh, that's that's pretty much what what the goal setting is all about what it means to me is just making sure that i can divide things up into manageable pieces where i say okay regardless of how how complex and how how monstrous the the long term goal is for this particular project or whatever i can i can at least say that just for today i can handle this you know just for just for t- today i i'm able to send these emails and and get this many bars of this arrangement done, uh, just for today, I can practice these many, this many phrases or work on, work on the, these many chord changes or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. And as long as I just, you know, keep my, keep my eyes on, on a realistic set of goals for, for today and for this week, then, uh, in general things go a lot more smoothly and I, and I get a lot more accomplished. So that's the biggest challenge I think for, for anybody who's self-employed is making sure that although you've got all the time in the world, uh, it somehow that ends up becoming the reason why we get nothing done because there's no uh, there are no immediate deadlines that that we need to meet. We have to get good at setting those those goals for ourselves. Um, and that's not to say that I don't shift my my goals and my deadlines from time to time. Everything is is certainly flexible, but you got to start with at least uh, a game plan that you can then adjust. But with no game plan, you know you you know you won't be covering much much ground at all. So. That took a while to figure out, but I'm certainly glad that I did because it helps. It helps me, you know, get a lot of traction on on projects.
0: Are you a person that writes your goals down on paper?
1: Uh, sometimes it's a lot easier when I do that. Yeah, I've I've been I've been using Evernote quite a bit more lately.
0: I love Evernote. Yeah, me too. It's it's great. You can do everything.
1: Uh, the other one that I use a lot is called MindNode, M-I-N-D-N-O-D-E, and uh, it's a nice way to to get ideas jotted down and then kind of have these little branches coming off of the, uh, say, say, okay, say I I write down, here's the, here's the concert I'm going to do next month with, with brass ensemble. And then I'll have a, a little stem coming off of that. Uh, or a, a different stem for every tune that I want to play, and then I'll have stems coming off of each of those tunes, letting me know where where's my what's the status on those ones. Well, I've got a big band version of this one; I just need to rearrange it. Or the other one, I I, I want I know I want to play this song, but I need to research. I need to you know do check out some different arrangements and and you know come up with a concept of of exactly what I want mine to sound like, and then get it done. So it's it's a nice way to to subdivide. Uh, concepts and ideas, and and keep track of them, and have different ideas that stem off of different ideas. It's it's a it's a nice way for me to organize the uh, the complexity of the of the, the the topics on my plate at any given time. So between those things, uh, that that's pretty much how I keep track of everything.
0: And what you what you just described is a mind mapping tool. Yeah, it's exactly. mind mapping. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. So now we know, uh, Mind, Node, Evernote. And I actually use a similar app called Mind MindMeister. It sounds like the exact same thing. And I'm saying this so that people can research this on their own. So thank you so much. Now, I read it in the same article. This is, guys, you got to check out the 21st Century Brass interview. Yep, that, that That was so good. And I've been waiting to talk about this stuff with somebody let's, let's talk about fear and okay. You, you teach a lot of people and fear is a common denominator as to why people are unable to do, they believe that it's unable, they're unable to do certain things. Will you talk about that for a moment?
1: Yeah. You know, I, it, to some people, it sounds like kind of a new agey hippie concept to say that almost every negative emotion can be boiled down to fear. But if you, if you, do some, do some thinking on that for a while. You've, I, at least I've found that, 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 that seems to hold water. Uh, you know, any, any kind of, um, well, any kind of conflict typically can be boiled down to the fear of something, uh, a conflict between neighboring countries could be fear of running out of resources. It all comes down to, you know, that could just be said that it's a fear of, of, uh, uh of death, fear of, uh, of not surviving, um, in, in some kind of hardship situation or whatever it is, you know, or it could be fear of rejection, fear of, uh, you know, there are all sorts of limiting fears. A lot of things that, that we, uh, allow to both have us make bad choices and poor choices of, of action and also, um, unfortunate choices of inaction. Uh, a lot of these things can all really just be boiled down to the fear of something or other. Uh, and you know, as much as I'm aware of this, I, I've certainly not transcended my occasional entrapment by fear. You know, there's, uh, there's. It's funny that this, the uh, the nature of this interview is 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 about uh, successful uh, musical careers, I guess, because my career is nowhere near as successful as it could probably I have otherwise been if I had just taken the bull by the horns a long time ago and gotten myself an agent, but. Uh, for, you know, I still don't have an agent. And, and now I can, and I can always do a really good job of rationalizing why that is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have, get an agent without having created uh, the projects that I want them to pitch for me. Uh, I don't, I don't have the video or the recording of, of this music that I wrote because I still haven't gotten a great recording of it. So until I do, I don't want to go get an agent because Whatever, you know, the mind can just can just send us on long journeys of excuses and explanations for for why we're not going out and, and getting it done. Whereas it, it could just as easily be said that I'm, you know, afraid of getting rejected by an agent that that I don't want to I don't want to subject myself to to the disappointment of that hum a humiliating experience you know and and uh and i think there's there's a little bit of truth in that you know i want to i want to make sure that first i've got i've got video i've got evidence of projects that are so undeniably amazing that there's no way that any agent would would ever say no you know so that's just one example of how you know i have a right now hands-on personal relationship with some kind of limiting fear so it's you know i don't think it, you know none of us are free from from fear as a motivating factor in some cases it can be a positive motivating factor you know fear of fear of failure can lead us to a a positive type of workaholic sort of situation where we just make sure to overcompensate for for that you know it's it's all about whether or not we face those fears or if we just run away from them so in this career in this profession that i've chosen for myself I really have to combat a lot of fears and there's no way, no way to, to actually pull off my job without confronting, uh, a lot of different types of fears that, that would make life a lot more difficult for me, both technically and professionally and emotionally. And you name it, we could, we could we could talk about this subject for, for hours on end. Uh, but that's, it's it's certainly something that everybody's got to take a look at at some point hopefully sooner rather than later and figure out at least just identify what the fears are and then figure out identify what uh what our responses are to those fears and if we continue to be aware of our fears and at the same time continue not to confront them not to face them head on and not to you know cover some ground uh towards eliminating, eliminating those fears or, or eliminating the, uh, the possibility of the thing that we're afraid that we're afraid of from happening, uh, then, you know, then we're just kind of willfully signing off on life in a way. So, so I try to be, try to be conscious of, of my fears and try to be proactive in addressing them and, and responding to them.
0: Give us one or two, one or two ways, uh, on how you have overcome your fear.
1: Okay. The one that trumpet players specifically need to deal with a lot is fear of, hit, of of missing the note, fear of not hitting the right note. Uh, because technically that the worst thing you could do for your playing is, is to ever be afraid of the thing that's just about to come out of the horn. Uh, because that leads to all kinds of physical tension and, and stress and, and all kinds of, um, Unnecessary body use that that makes trumpet playing inefficient. Therefore, being the thing that causes you to miss the note in the first place. So, so it's uh, the the funny thing is, it's such a cyclical problem. If you're afraid of what you're going to play no doubt you're going to approach that playing in a way that is less efficient and less effective. And you're, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) If I'm afraid that I'm going to miss this note, that's, that's the only time that I can pretty much guarantee I'm going to miss that note. So I had to deal with that fear. Uh, you know, we're confronted with that, you know, in, in childhood, we're confronted with that fear. So, uh, so that's, that's one that I've been aware of for a really long time. And I definitely kicked that one. And as as much as it may seem like a uh, an oversimplification, uh, to me the way that I was able to fix that was just by saying, screw it, whatever. If the note comes out, great. If it doesn't, it's okay. You know, <laughs> the, the the I'll still get paid at the end of the night. People will still hopefully be impressed with most of what they heard, and uh, hopefully because they had a good time anyway, they'll they'll forgive me. Uh, so you know, but, and if they don't forgive me and, and I've lost, I've lost a whole audience of potential of otherwise would be fans for the rest of my life Then okay, screw it. There's more people out there, better, better luck tomorrow. So I really just had to adopt a, uh, a policy of psh, whatever, you know, if it works great, if it doesn't, it's okay. I'll, I'll live to play another day. I'll still get called for another gig. You know, there's, there's bound to be some success mixed in Amongst these failures, you know. So I, I just really, I just decided there's, there's no sense in, in holding back at all because the best chance I've got at success is to just go all in anyway. So, whatever, <laughs> you know. And uh, that kind of, that kind of fearless approach to, to playing is, it, it, it comes along, it, it brings such a, uh, a mental tranquility that can happen. You know, if, if, if you eliminate the fear that leads to stage fright, that leads to, uh, to all of the problems I've already laid out, then what you're left with is just music. You're left with your instrument in your hands, an audience, you know, that are, that are there to have a good time and a, and a group of musicians who are there to have a good time. And, and there you are the, uh, you know, a co-facilitator in a, in a beautiful emotional experience for people and intellectual experience, you know, so it's, it's really what you're left with after the fear is just a good time, <laughs> you know, hopefully. And, uh, and, and all you have to do the, the, it's, it may seem like, again, like I said, oversimplified, but really when you, when it comes down to it, you've got two choices. You can either allow fear to, uh, to potentially throw a monkey wrench into things to sabotage, uh, every note, every phrase, everything that happens, or you can just say. All right. Well, what's the worst that could happen? You know, it's uh, most of the gig is probably still going to go well anyway. So whatever. You know, let me just let it out and uh, and just realize that what I'm here to do is not to to sit here and wrestle with myself, wrestle with with my own uh, my own fears and the emotional instability that, that 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 causes. But what I'm here to do is provide a beautiful experience for other people. And as long as you can focus your efforts on on wanting to facilitate a beautiful experience for others, then you'll be a lot less concerned with, um, with the, the fallout of having, having let them down. What happens if I crack the note? They're going to, they're all going to hate me. They're all going to, you know, I'll never get called for another classical gig ever again. They're just going to write me off as a silly jazzer who never should have tried in the first place. You know, the, the, the degree to which our minds can come up with all this debilitating mind chatter is, is endless and and astounding. But, you know, it just one simple phrase, just screw it, whatever, whatever happens, happens. Uh, That can, that can be enough. If you, if you actually mean it, when you say that, that's enough to diffuse the entire potential negative situation. And, uh, and I think that's, that's one of the sources of my success is that it was a very long time ago, I was able to, to uh, adopt that policy and almost nothing ever freaks me out on stage. And I mean, I'm struggling to even point out an example when I was actually freaked out on stage in in recent history, meaning the last decade. Uh, Yeah.
0: Well, let me give an example for myself, (laughs) because uh, I've recently had this happen to me in the last year. And by the way, I wrote a really nice blog article about performance anxiety, overcoming performance anxiety. And I'll link to it in the show notes. But for me, I was afraid because I was actually living out a dream. And it was something that I looked forward to since I was a teenager. And I found myself in the situation. And it was, it was just like, wow, this is incredible. Finally. I'm finally here. I dreamed about this, but I allowed that to uh, prevent me from performing to the best of my ability in the moment. And I think the real reason why sometimes we freeze up in situations like that, the main reason is you're not living in the moment for sure. You know, so ultimately, and and I write about this, you have to remember, you know, unfortunately, most of the time people don't really come to hear you perform. They're, they're coming because they, they're on a date. And, <laughs> right. you know, they right. want to impress or maybe they just need to like, you know, various reasons why. So if you get out of your mind that people are paying such close attention to you, you know, that, you know, free you up to live in the moment.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's very, it's a very egocentric uh, type of fear. Uh, most fear, I think, I, I, maybe, maybe it could even be said that all fear is an egocentric thing. Uh, you know, it's the, the fear of uh, in this case, that that people are going to be there. That people are there specifically to judge you, which gets even even worse if you're in an audition setting or uh, you're playing for a jury or whatever that might be. Um, you know, it's it's especially difficult to, for for people to deal with that kind of of performance anxiety when, when they know that they're specifically there to be judged against other people. And that's, that's maybe a whole other, whole other bag. But in terms of just general performances, you're totally right. People are there to, you know, to go out on a date. They're there to, because they like the composer of the music, or, you know, they're there because, uh, because their, their son or daughter was in this, this band 20 years ago and they just go there to support them and they don't really care what goes on and they can't even tell if it's good or not. (laughs) You know, there's a, in general, people are not out to get you. And, uh, you know, if you, if you're always living from that perspective, uh, while you're on stage that, that people are, are, they have a checklist and they're ticking off every time you crack a note, then, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's most definitely not living in the moment. That's absolutely living in the future uh, of, you know, and, and foreseeing or being, being nervous about the fallout of, of that, what will happen later? What will they say? What will, how will this negatively affect me? Um, and then there's, you know, past experiences too. You know, if you've had a traumatic experience before, the chances are that that could be the, the only reason why you're having a bad time right now is just because you had a bad time, uh, you know, sometime last year or last month. And uh and again, it's it's all about just being in the moment. And and I know of no better way to get into the moment than to just focus on your breathing. Uh so there's a whole bunch of deep breathing going on for sure. And uh and breathing is it's is a is a whole other fascinating topic unto itself, where it's the only thing that the human body can do both consciously and unconsciously. You know, you can you if you are if you're having a bad time and you're, you're, you're in fight or flight mode, then just putting your hands on your belly and just taking some slow, deep breaths. It might take a few. It might take 10. It might take more. But you can commandeer your emotional state and your physical state through conscious breathing. Uh, vice versa, if, if you're perfectly calm and everything is fine then, uh, and, and somebody sneaks up behind you and says, boo, and, and you, get, you get spooked into fight or flight mode, that's when your body commandeers your breathing and, and fight or flight mode has, has caused you to, you know, you're, 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 you're expecting to have to fight or flight. So your body says, Oh, I know what kind of breathing we need for this. And, uh, and then all of a sudden the breathing is not a conscious choice on your part. Um, but it's just an automated response. So we can, we can either choose to just go with the flow or we can actually, you know, take the reins and, and, uh, and that's, for sure the most important thing to to make sure is that your breathing doesn't change when you find yourself in a performance setting where you know most of the time people feel pretty good about what they're doing in the practice room and then they get out on stage and 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 all of a sudden it's different and things things feel different and and i i can't play as well as i was able to and now i can't play that long phrase and uh, uh, you know and these are all just manifestations of of a fight or flight response because you know our our fear has now taken hold of our breathing and if we can if we can accept the fear and we say okay cool if even if i'm not able to say a screw it whatever happens happens but i'm still actually consciously in this very moment i am afraid uh at least if i can be aware of that that on an emotional level i'm afraid at least if as long as i can just continue to deal with the nuts and bolts of breathe in Breathe out, you know, and make sure that I don't allow the emotional state to commandeer my physical state. Uh, then I still have a fighting chance of of actually, uh, you know, fooling the audience and, and and my fellow musicians and and actually, you know, getting the job done and and uh, still facilitating a beautiful experience for everybody else. So that's a good thing to focus
0: on. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Now, just one, maybe two more things. Uh, let's talk about habits briefly. And there's power in habit, we know that you know there there comes a point where you just simply stop thinking of a thing. It doesn't take any concentrated effort because you have developed a habit so what have you found is a good method perhaps on reprogramming? let's say you want to just create a new habit yeah yeah
1: well um well there's 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 process and for sure the the process this is this is something that is maybe one of the top two or three things I, uh, that I focus on in my teaching, uh, one of the the most, uh, the topics that's most raised uh, because a lot of trumpet players, you know, musicians in general, we, we learn inefficiencies as children. We, we program uh, muscle memory. That's not very efficient. And and we need to, at some point figure out how to, how to replace that muscle memory programming with, with, uh, with programming that is more efficient and more effective. And, and so I'm basically as a, as a trumpet teacher, uh, I'm in the business of helping people reprogram what they're doing, and the simple fact of the matter is that uh, you have to you have to be conscious, fully conscious of everything that your body is doing instead of taking things for granted, you know, for instance, it, it muscle memory is a wonderful thing when it comes to walking and not having to think about, okay, now I just put my left foot forward. Now, wh- which one comes next? Uh, you know, or making sure that you don't poke your eye out with your drinking glass when you go to take a sip of, of something, you know, it, there, there are times when, when it's okay to just, you know, go with the flow and, and allow the programming to, to just run. But when, when I'm practicing, Uh, And you may have read in that same article, I think it was in that same article in 21st Century Brass, uh, where I actually discard the word practice in general and and swap it out for the word programming. Because the way I see it, we're we're either performing or we're programming for a performance. And uh, we're either displaying our ability to do something or we're teaching our body the ability to do that thing. And so I I guess I should rephrase, not when I'm practicing, but when I'm programming, I make sure that... That I'm truly doing that, and that I'm not at the same time allowing other various programs to just be running on autopilot. Uh, you know, there are certain things like you know it, we can't multitask, technically at least men can't. So so we're stuck with the with the daunting task of of uh, having kind of a revolving wheel of where we're putting our focus. So you know I could focus on my posture, and then focus on my breathing, and then focus on what the facial muscles are doing, and then focus on what my tongue is doing and then back around to posture again and then back around to breathing again and and so you know we we can only really shine the light of our consciousness on on one thing at a time uh, but we can be we can get better and better at at doing that quickly at at shining the light of of attention on our posture for just one second to just make sure that everything is cool and then we move on to breathing then we move on to the face and move on to the tongue move on to the abdominal muscles back on to you know and, and and it can be it can eventually seem or feel like we're multitasking but really we're not and uh <clears throat> i guess when it comes to reprogramming we just need to be aware of of what all of those programs are that make up the action that we want to perform for instance if it's playing the trumpet playing we'll just keep it simple playing a long tone uh we need to be aware there's a program for how to sit or how to stand properly uh, to to make it so that we're using as 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 few muscles as possible and we're expending <clears throat> excuse me expending as as little energy as as necessary to get the job done with that and then there's the program that defines <clears throat> how we inhale and how we exhale <clears throat> and then there's the program that defines how we hold the horn and how we set the mouthpiece against our lips there are all these programs and and some things you know if we if we're going to focus on reprogramming one of those things we at least need to have spent a little bit of time assessing the other programs to make sure that that they're they're not faulty, that they will survive, that we can we can let those things go on autopilot and focus our attention on on this one thing which which uh, needs the most work. So, um, when it comes to programming, I guess the first thing is be aware of exactly how many programs are are running simultaneously, and uh, <clears throat> and don't take anything for granted, and then when it comes down to the you know just getting to the nitty-gritty and, and dealing with this one program that we want to change which might be you know what we want to how we want to make a slight change in the way that we hold our horns so that we're not putting as much pressure on our lips or something like that whatever it might be um when when it comes down to that as long as we stay really really focused and really aware and never letting the music take us away or letting our letting our thoughts or, or, or fears or whatever just run wild and, and, and take our attention away. We really need to just focus and stay focused for as long as possible until we get to the point where we can't focus anymore, where just, I need a break. I need a mental. I need a break. I need to check out. Uh, if you find yourself checking out and there's nothing you can do about it, then, then you're done. Then the programming session is over, whether you like it or not. Um, so there's a certain amount of endurance that comes with reprogramming, uh, a mental endurance. And, uh, and that just, that grows over time, you know, and the more that you, that you force yourself to just hang in there just a little bit longer, then the better you get at, uh, at, at marathon programming, (laughs) you know, and, um, and that's really the name of the game is to make sure that you are giving yourself repetition after repetition after repetition of perfectly focused, perfectly achieved muscular action. You know, and it's, it's pretty much that simple. Don't, don't try to program something that's, that's over your head, uh, would be the next thing. Uh, that's, you know, you just have to break, break something down into, into manageable bits and deal with each of those manageable bits one at a time and give yourself repetition after repetition after repetition at something that is manageable. And so you're, you're programming something, perfectly, you know, rather than, than practicing a phrase too quickly and, and, you know, being a little bit sloppy with, with your fingers or a little bit sloppy with the articulation. If you just slow it down and play, just play it half that tempo, make it so whatever the tempo is that you're playing, it's, it's, it's going to be good. You, you will hit every note perfectly because you're giving yourself enough time to, to actually hit the target of all those notes and if you if you approach your programming this way, then you're telling your brain event after event, I play this note, I play this note, I move my fingers here, I move my fingers here, I move my tongue here and and you just you you dot every I cross every T and make sure that it's perfect programming. Then it really doesn't matter what what speed it's happening at. you can once you've programmed at that slow tempo, your brain is still uh, accumulating this sequence, this this order of events, and it's getting, all of these, these events perfectly. And once they're, once they're programmed into your brain, you can just step on the gas and, you know, turn up the tempo and you can just shrink the, the distance between those events. You can reduce the amount of time that it takes to get from A to B and B to C and C to D. All that matters in the beginning with programming is that you program A, B, and C, you know, and then eventually you can say, okay, A, B, C, A, B, C, you know and and you can your brain will do a very good job at uh, at at turning up the tempo after you've at least given it a very clear picture of of what you want it to accomplish. so you know, just slow and steady and everything almost everything I play is uh, it starts off as a ballad, whether it's uh, you know flight of the bumblebee or you know if I'm learning a tune, I'm learning a tune that's that's always a burner, like you know, I don't know Cherokee or something like that. i still I learn it as a ballad, uh, you know, and Maybe I'll even if it's a, a challenging finger dexterity type of type of challenge, then I'll 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 play in the left hand and I'll and I'll you know go dreadfully slow, <laughs> so slow that a lot of people might find it boring. But I find it to just be uh, um, relieving that I don't have to think so fast that I can just take my time and and do it right. And uh, and then all of a sudden, after playing something slowly in your left hand for a while go over to the right hand and you can play it double the speed cleaner than you've ever played it. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty astounding. So, so I've, I've definitely given this one a lot of, a lot of experimentation and it it always holds true. Just play things, play accomplishable, manageable tasks, play things, basically try to always sound perfect when you're playing. And if, and if, you know, 10 times out of 10, you didn't come anywhere close to playing it perfectly, then you're playing it too fast. Then find the tempo at which you can actually play it perfectly, uh even if you just need to break it down to that one interval that's that's throwing a, a monkey wrench into things. Just find a tempo where that interval is accomplishable and uh is achievable and and once once you've managed to to move past that that interval and and program that, then you can zoom back out and and deal with the whole phrase and you know it's it's a very simple methodical process uh, but unless you actually break it all the way down. Uh, with something that's a challenge, something that needs reprogramming then then you're skipping over the the very essential foundational elements of 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 that muscle memory programming, so there's absolutely no shortcut when it comes to this. You've absolutely got to do it, gotta commit to playing something perfectly very you know as slow as as it needs to be and then and then turn up the tempo and then it becomes a much less overwhelming, a much less daunting task then it's just. All right, yeah. This this feels nice and I get to celebrate all these little victories. Yay, look at me. I'm playing all the right notes. You know, and and uh and then two clicks faster, two clicks faster and and you get to feel a lot more satisfied and 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 get to experience more gratification during the programming process than uh than if you were to be doing kind of a bad job of practicing uh where you just you know try and fail try and fail you know try it too fast and fall on your face and try it too fast and fall on your face so there's there's definitely nothing to be gained that way you can get a lot more done in 20 good minutes of of real really obsessive compulsive practice versus 2 hours or heck even 2 weeks of of playing in kind of an impetuous way where you're just blasting through things and not really dotting i's or crossing t's um yeah i'd definitely say practice smarter not harder
0: so that's good. I'm going to paraphrase what you said. To reprogram, you want to focus on a single thing, even though you may have many goals. You want to you want to break things down to one thing at a time so that you can manage your challenge and do everything, as I like to say, with purpose, or on purpose so that you have a specific a specific reason and you're in a specific goal for that small task that you've broken down.
1: Exactly. Very well. <laughs> well, well, you you were able to s- summarize that in 30 seconds. Maybe I should get better at
0: <laughs> paraphrasing <laughs> myself. <laughs> hey man, I I uh, I practice too. Yeah, I practice trying <laughs> to be uh, descriptive if my words. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've been very generous with your time and we're going to we're going to stop you're right green. here. And just say thank you very much for sharing your time. And if you're open, I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Future. Yeah, let's check back in. No problem. All right. Mm-hmm. Take it easy, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for sticking around this long. Really appreciate you. We have some things for you in the blog that we mentioned in this episode, which is the performance anxiety article, which is hopefully going to help you if you have that issue. Also, we're going to link to the apps that were mentioned here. And you can find those things at BehindTheNote.com slash 30. And that's all for today. God bless you. We'll see you in the next episode. Really, really appreciate you. God bless you.